Good morning. Well, today we are turning in our Bibles to Psalm 96. And in order to be able to get a sense of how this psalm fits into the overall plan that God has for the way in which these psalms are to be arranged, thought you might want to see this that appears on the screen. It is what I will call here another poetic pyramid. It's the third that we come across in the psalms. And what I want you to notice is that these are nine psalms that speak of God's kingship, his royalty, his majesty, his reign over the world. Notice that 92, 93, on through 95 are ascending upward. And then when you get to Psalm 96, which we're exploring today, you've reached the pinnacle, the summit. This is now the apex of what God wants to communicate to you and to me. So we're looking at something strategic this morning. After this, then the descent begins that leads to Psalm, Psalm 100. And so with all of this in mind now, you can see how God has arranged these nine psalms, royal psalms, Yahweh is king psalms, with the summit being what you and I are exploring in these verses today. So with that in mind now, I hope you have made your way to Psalm 96, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and look at these verses together with you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens, splendor, majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. And tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
So we're going to be exploring these verses together. And what we want to do, service prior to this, this one, as well as our, our church family that joining us now online in the days to come. So in one accord now, we're going to seek God and ask how this relates to modern day life as we, as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, you know the needs. You know the heartbeat. You know the thought processes. You know the issues of the prior week and the challenges of this coming week. Medically, financially, job, school, most importantly, matters of the heart. And what we want to do is to explore the throne room of the universe and see how this is meant to shape the matters of the heart. We want your worth to be ascribed in our worthship. We want you to be able to understand the degree to which we worship you in spirit and truth, that in your infinite, eternal, sovereign knowledge, you look into these hearts, sinful by nature, and we offer our broken worship, but worship nonetheless to you, because you are worthy of all things. Father, these moments are extraordinarily important when we explore your word. The Sovereign One has spoken. We're listening. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Captured my attention somewhere in the last 10 years where a book was written to honor Queen Elizabeth. But the book, this new book, was a reflection upon her relationship to her Lord and her Savior, Jesus Christ. And for her 90th birthday, it was to be put into print where she would call Christ Quote, the king she serves in the title. And looking at some of the writings that led into the making of this book, she would say, among other things, that she was very grateful to the people of the constituency of Great Britain for, quote, your prayers and to God for his steadfast love. For she would go on to say, I have indeed seen his faithfulness. Now, when you read that and you ponder the significance of this phrase written by a monarch devoted to the king that she serves, then what we want to do is to understand very thoroughly this king that you and I that all of us should serve. And so what we want to do here in these moments together is to look very carefully at what I'm going to call stanzas of supremacy. 
because this psalm is broken out into five stanzas, each of which brings a new sense of understanding to what it means for God to be sovereign, not only over our lives personally, but over this world globally. And so with that in mind, I want to begin now with this first stanza that stands out as you and I begin to explore verses 1 through 3 together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now notice with me that not once, not twice, three times you and I are enjoined to sing. But furthermore, three times we are told into whom we are to sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth, and sing to the Lord and bless his name. Now, as we begin to explore these verses together, notice with me that when he says, Oh, sing to the Lord, he is talking about the one who, in the Hebrew, the name, of course, is Yahweh. The one, as we've mentioned in prior weeks, that Moses encountered in his wilderness experience, when with the burning bush in front of him, he would ask the one of the burning bush, and who shall I say sent me? And the response was, tell them, I am sent you. And in the Hebrew, what he's saying is, tell them, Yahweh sent you. Now, this was extraordinarily important for the people that would be reading this. They would be exiles returning to the land of promise, Israel. They would have been encountering all kinds of false gods in a foreign land. And so they're challenged, oh, sing to the Lord, Yahweh, a new song. Now, when you and I begin to look at the word new in the Older Testament in particular, and on into the new, think about the ways in which this begins to unfold. For example, during the Thanksgiving season, we begin to think about new mercies. Great is thy faithfulness from Lamentations, uh, where God would want us in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, to be able to seize the moment and offer him our praise. Think of the new covenant that was established through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Think about the fact that when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, the Bible describes you as a new creation person. And whether you are reading in Isaiah 65 and 66, or making your way into the book of Revelation, where you and I would find in chapter 21, verse 5, that God's intent is to involve himself with a new heavens and new earth. What God does, then, is to invest himself in the newness of life. Well, sing to the Lord a new song. And now for these people... What they would have to do is to say, in what new lessons have I learned 
as I've made my way from captivity back to Israel itself. And likewise for you and for me now, what we do to enhance our worship, we ask ourselves, and what new experiences have we, I had now with God's grace, God's goodness, God's faithfulness in my life, no matter what my wilderness experience might be, to enhance my worship to such a degree that I've got a new song that's flowing from my heart, through my lips, upward to the throne room of God. And once you've grasped the threefold sing-twos, connected each time with the, the Lord, then you are able to say, then I'm going to bless his name. The name Yahweh being revealed here. But now what I want to do with you is look very carefully at the wording. What comes next here? Notice that it goes on to say, tell of his salvation from day to day. In the Hebrew, the word Beitzah is foretell in some translations to proclaim or to announce. In other words, what he's challenging you and me to do is to take our worship and develop our witness. You cannot divorce your worship from your witness. Worship and witness come under the sovereign hand of our God. And now you take this announcement, this proclamation, this telling, and what this is, is to inform others of the gospel the good news that you and I know, God sent his son into the world to die for your sins, for my sins. Tell of his salvation. In other words, this is coming from him to us, for us. And how often? Day to day. And then to reiterate, he uses a different word in the very next phrase. Declare his glory. The word declare is in the imperative. It's a must. And glory, it's the Hebrew word, kavod, we've talked about it periodically, heavy. In other words, you don't take God lightly in your worship. Now, what we offer at this time is worship to the God who is worthy. We connect our worship to our witness. We tell, we declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And this is exactly what happened in 1893. It was the world's exposition held in Chicago an astronomical number of people would come and they were going to be visiting exhibit after exhibit after exhibit. And this was going to be the renaissance of Chicago after the great fire of 1873. They wanted to put on best face and show the world of their comeback. In the heart of it all was what was known as the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives, all the various religions, would meet to share their best points 
with their hopes and dreams of being able to create a new religious world order. Well, D.L. Moody was taking this into account. Saw this as an extraordinary opportunity for evangelism. So he commissioned a number of evangelists throughout the greater Chicago region to set up posts for outreach. Rented even a circus tent for the sharing of the gospel, as well as theaters in the area. Now, some of his colleagues were calling upon him to attack the Parliament of Religions. He didn't. He said, instead, I'm going to make Jesus Christ supreme so that everyone will turn to him. He knew that sharing the gospel of Christ was preeminent and that Christ is all-sufficient. And clearly, this would do the job, and it did. Because the Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's life, where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people from all nations converged and heard the good news of salvation. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory, the weightiness of him among the nations. His marvelous works, the most important, Christ's work among all the peoples. And there's your first, what I will call, stanza of supremacy. You make your way now to the second stanza. And notice how this begins to unfold. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. For he is to be, what? Feared. How? Why? Where? Notice this. Above all gods. What I'd love for you to be able to see now is what I call the triangle of truth. Notice very carefully what appears on the screen at this point. And notice that in Psalm 95 of verse 3, it speaks of the Lord being above all gods, little g. You get to Psalm 96, look at verse 4, and there we have it again in today's exposition, above all gods. You make your way to Psalm 97, look very carefully at verse 9. What do you have again? He is above all gods. And now within the, what I will call the poetic pyramid of kingship, you have got embedded now this triangle of truth, three significant verses and three significant psalms with once again the summit, the apex, the supremacy of it all. Here we find it in this verse that we are now exploring. For great is the Lord, Notice he builds on this greatly to be praised. He is to be feared where, how, among whom, above all gods. The writer who had been in India tells us, 
On one occasion, I stood by the side of a road, watching the golden statue of a god being transported from one temple to another. Thousands clamored to give an offering, to receive a blessing. The priests accompanying the, the god had incense and ash in their hands, generously distributed the goodwill of this particular deity upon any fruit or piece of cloth placed before them. He writes, the sight was extraordinary. The rich, the poor, the young, the old stretched their hands up as this chariot went by at snail's pace. I asked a woman who had just received her blessing if this God actually existed or if he was just an expression of some inner, inner hunger. She looked very hesitant and then said, if you think in your heart that he exists, then he exists. But then I asked, and what if you believe he does not exist? Then he does not exist. She softly said. He paused. That possibly summarizes the major personages to whom divinity is ascribed today. Some will attempt to prove their beliefs. Others just quietly carry them in their hearts, creating their own deities and then trying to appease them. The Apostle Paul was forced to deal with this where he in Ephesus saw the idols that were being created. And these idols that were being created were being created by hands. And what's interesting is that their gods were created out of something. Your God, on the other hand, creates out of nothing something. See the distinctions here? And do you see why he then ties this together, the psalmist, with what comes next? Because in the phrasing now, he goes on in verse 5 to say, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. The word worthless in the Hebrew, Elim, is meant to be a direct contrast to Elohim the name for God. He's saying these are worthless. Our sovereign God is to be worshipped and to ascribe his worth to him. These idols are filled with emptiness is the meaning of this word worthless. Now, you and I, on a daily basis, are among people who are continuously experiencing the emptiness of life, and they're trying to fill it with everything possible, this void that they experience day in, day out. But when God sovereignly reigns in your heart and you recognize true value, worship flows so naturally toward the one who is worthy And now you connect the dots at this point. 
And here you say, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But, and now he makes this God personal, relational, as should you, as should I. But the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. R.C. Sproul. Well, Cinderella had a mother and a grandmother. Her story that began once upon a time did not begin at the absolute beginning. Before Cinderella, there were kings and queens and rocks and trees, horses, jackrabbits, and daffodils. What was there before the beginning of Genesis 1? Well, Adam had no father and no grandfather. He had no history books to read because there was no history. Before the creation, there were no kings or queens or rocks or trees. There was nothing, nothing, of course, except God. And here is where I get an excedrin headache. Before the world began, there was nothing. But what in the world is nothing? Have you ever tried to think about nothing? Where can you find it? Nowhere. Why? Because it is nothing, and nothing doesn't exist. It can't exist, because if it did, then it would be something and not nothing. And are you starting to join me in getting a headache? Think about it for a second. Nuts, I can't tell you to think about it, because nothing isn't an it. I can only say nothing isn't. So now, how can we think about nothing? We can't simply impossible. If we try to think of nothing, we always think of something. And as soon as I try to think about nothing, I start imagining a lot of empty air, but air is something. It has weight, substance. I know that because what happens if a nail goes through the tire of my car, and now when you and I ponder the fact that what God has done is used that particular word worthless, which means in the Hebrew nothingness, attach it to the idols, and then talks about the sovereign maker, you see how all of this fits together in a very succinct way, strategically. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. For as Abraham Kuyper, the former leader of the Netherlands, would put it, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. You're up to the third stanza of supremacy. You've covered one through three and four through six. But now notice what he challenges us and joins us to do at this point. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, market glory, the heaviness, the weightiness, and strength. Third time. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Add it weightiness. Bring an offering. 
bring an offering and come to his courts. This is the sovereign setting where he reigns. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Tremble. And I recall the story that John Piper recounts of being in a thunderstorm while flying at night from Chicago to Minneapolis. I was almost alone on the plane. The pilot announced there was a thunderstorm over Lake Michigan and into Wisconsin. And as I sat there staring out the total blackness, suddenly the whole sky was brilliant with light and a cavern of white clouds fell away four miles beneath the plain and then vanished. A second later, a mammoth white tunnel of light exploded from north to south across the horizon and again vanished into blackness. And soon the lightning was almost constant and volcanoes of light burst out of cloud ravines and from behind distant white mountains I sat there shaking my head almost in unbelief. Oh Lord, if these are but the sparks from the sharpening of your sword, what will be the day of your appearing? And then I remembered the words of Jesus Christ. As the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will I, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And even now I as I recollect that sight, the word glory is now full of meaning for me. And when he wrote that, we nod our heads. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Out of that, then, is the natural response of worship. You bring the offering, you bring worship, splendor of holiness, tremble before him, all the earth. And now as you're exploring what I will call the stanzas of supremacy, you're up to the fourth stanza, which simply reads, Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will, he will judge the peoples. He goes on to say, he will judge the peoples with equity. Now, when you and I capture the significance of that and we understand what he is saying at this point, then our minds perhaps would go when he talks about judging the peoples with equity to a time when Winston Churchill stood up and stood against Hitler when Hitler was making his movements onwards, onwards into further into Europe, where in 1938, he would stand before Parliament 
and then speaking to Hitler from afar, would quote scripture by declaring, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. From Daniel chapter 5, verse 27. And then he would end his speech saying, and do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of your reckoning. And God is now saying here, he will judge the peoples with equity. Our God reigns. So now you come to the final stanza, the stanza of supremacy. And as you build these stanzas one upon another, what he is now saying to you is that this Lord is more than the significant one. This Lord is the sovereign one. You see the distinction? Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. And now as he looks at the expanse of the environment and the ecological systems, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it, and then anticipating that future day when the Lord returns, then all the trees of the earth sing for joy because right now, as Paul would state it in Romans 8, the earth groans in anticipation of. But here we find, before the Lord, he comes and then develops it further. <clears throat> for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. You know, when the conversations were taking place about Queen Elizabeth's passing were unfolding, and things about the Lord were being discussed, as I was pondering this, one of the chaplains of a predecessor, Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria, had been listening very carefully to, to teachings on the second coming of Christ. Pamela had brought this out for me and, and what she had just read and heard. I had excerpts of this very thing in my files. Queen Victoria, a believer in Christ. After hearing Psalm 96 expounded by a pastor who had, who had spent time uh, teaching in, in her court, Queen Victoria exclaimed, Oh, how I wish the Lord would come in my, in my lifetime. Why, asked the court chaplain, does your majesty feel this very earnest desire and then we are told with deep emotion, the queen responded, I should so love to lay my crown at my king's feet. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let's stand together.
And so, Father, for the prior service, for this service, for those watching online at this moment, who will be in the hours and days, weeks to come, we're praying that they will realize and accept and ascribe worship to you because you are more than significant to our lives. You are supreme and sovereign over our lives. We give you all praise. And you validate that supremacy where even the King of kings and Lord of lords was raised from the grave, validating this very fact. I pray if there's anyone of these services or online that has not yet put faith and trust in the Supreme One who has died for our sins, I pray they'll do so right now and put exclusive faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.